0: Aside from the uh, the story about the factory closing, the very first day of my first visit to Biden, I went to meet the town archivist during this visit, and she revealed to me that the Kupfer Villa, after my family, after my grandfather was forced to sell it, was actually occupied by the Nazis and made into their regional headquarters. Not only that, but in the closing days of the war, The town was bombarded by American artillery, you know, who were closing in on the Nazis. And my grandfather's house was actually destroyed by the American artillery. The fact that Nazis officials were living and working in my grandfather's house and possibly sleeping in his bed, just sort of was gut-wrenching to me and, and just shocking. And that was one of the most surprising discoveries I made in the course of writing the book.
1: Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And that was journalist and author Peter Kupfer sharing one of the many stunning stories he uncovered in the research and writing of his book, The Glassmaker's Son. He goes on to give more detail about his quest to better know his father who had escaped Nazi Germany and the family left behind in Bavaria, including his grandfather, who had once been a successful businessman and philanthropist, but was forced to spend his last days as an inmate of Terezin concentration camp. Mr. Kupfer also shares about how his quest to understand his father helped him to understand his own identity. His skepticism over comments he received That no one had any idea what was going on as Jewish families like his were being ousted from their homes. The naughty details of what should have been a straightforward handover of a pair of ancestral portraits that had been safeguarded during the war, as well as the many coincidences that arose during his journey, including how he came to attend the last board meeting of his family's glassmaking factory, and how his book release, on the 22nd of November, happens to fall on the day a commemorative Stolpersteine in honor of his family will be laid in front of the last voluntary residence of Mr. Kupfer's grandfather, the Kupfer Villa, which, as you heard, was then overtaken to conduct the business of the Third Reich. Peter Kupfer, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you, Stephanie pleasure to be here.
1: How would you describe The Glassmaker's Son?
0: Well, it's kind of a blend of memoir, uh, my recollections, and uh, remembrances of my father, uh, combined with, uh, blended with, uh, you know, history of my father's family. Because a lot of the book is devoted to my going back to his hometown of Bavaria, <clears throat> and you know, exploring my my family's roots. And um, as I say in my book, uh, he spoke very little about his life in Germany before he came to the United States. So I was very curious about that. So it, it in some ways it's like two books, and I actually struggled with this in writing the book because I, um, you know, wrote a lot about my relationship with my father and and what kind of man he was and what kind of father he was. And that was important to me because I was really longing to learn more about him because, frankly, he didn't really share a lot uh, about his, he certainly didn't share much about his life in Germany. And he was 30 years old when he came, so he wasn't like a youngster. Um, he had a, you know, a good part of his life was, was lived in Nazi Germany, or in Germany. So, um, yeah, it was, it's a blend of uh, memoir and, and family history.
1: Before we started the official interview, we were touching on this idea of the identity aspect of your book. So, um, if you'd like to speak to that for a moment. You just mentioned that your father was 30 when he came to the States from Nazi Germany, and you were about that age when you recognized that the name you'd had all your life didn't seem to fit.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, as I said, Dad didn't speak about his history, his past in Germany, and I, <clears throat> it was sort of like a, a mystery to me uh, what what his life had been like and um, and who he was as a man uh, before he came to the United States. So, you know, I was naturally curious. I'm a journalist by profession, so uh, that's sort of in my DNA to be curious. And, and um, yeah, so I wanted to sort of dig into who he was, his identity. Um, but actually in the process of writing the book, I think I um, uncovered a lot about my own identity. Because I, I I feel since in the process of writing the book, I became more rooted about who I am and who, yeah, I mean, about my own identity. So that was sort of one of the surprising, I think, uh, I mean, obviously I knew I was on a quest to learn more about my father's identity and my father's family, but in the process of Doing that, I, I think I, I learned a lot more about my own identity, or more comfortable with my own identity.
1: Just as an aside, I love that you changed your name back. I just think that's such a beautiful testament to your roots and, and such a good step towards the future with honoring that. And I love that, that that began the frame of your book.
0: There was a friend of mine who suggested Originally, it wasn't the beginning of the book. It was later on, and he thought that would be a very apropos um, way to start the book, because as you say, it sort of reflects my, you know, the feelings I had about my father and his identity and having, being forced or feeling obliged to. Americanize it and sort of distance himself from his past, you know. So I, I know. he never really talked about exactly why he changed it, but it was, you know, not unusual, right, for a lot of immigrants. Anglicize their name and whether it was because they wanted to distance themselves from their past or just wanted to fit in more in their, in the American culture.
1: And would you describe a bit about your father, like just a, a, an overview of him, and what you learned about your family history on your father's side that had really been a mystery to you up until your your own research began? So,
0: as I mentioned, in my book, uh, you know, my father rarely spoke about his life in Germany, um, and one of the few things that, uh, he brought with him or he was able to bring with him when he immigrated to the States was, a uh, an album of photographs. <clears throat> and these are pictures of elegantly dressed people posed in front of, uh, you know, lovely homes, stately houses, beautiful landscapes in Bavaria where he grew up, you know, and it was clear from the images, um, and this is one of the things I found so fascinating was that uh, you know they were quite affluent. They there were pictures of my father skiing in the Alps and dressed to the nines at um, these posh resorts like Carlsbad. Uh, uh, you know, it's a very fancy resort. You know, and this was to me. You know, I grew up. We were quite typical middle class family. Not not poor by any means. I mean, we we were never. I never felt like we lacked anything. But to see these my pictures of my father dressed in really elegant clothes, driving these really beautiful, shiny Mercedes, and having beautiful women around him. And so it was all really kind of uh, glamorous to me. And so I was very curious to, to learn more about that. And he never talked about any of this stuff. And when I asked him questions about it, he would sort of, as I say in my book, swatted them away like like flies. You know, he just didn't want to go there, and so it was very uh, that only piqued my interest more because, as a naturally curious person, I, I needed to find out what that life was like.
1: And so then, nineteen seventy nine rolls around, and and you embark,
0: right. Yeah, my dad had died actually, unfortunately, um, in 1976. He was he was, only, he was just shy of seventy, um, and I was about 25. Um, so, after he passed away, I, I, um, yeah, as you say, embarked on this this uh, mission to see if I could learn more about his life in Germany. And it was part of a sort of a grand tour of Europe I was taking. I was like 27 at the time, 28. And, you know, I would, I'd would i been dying to go to Europe, you know, but back then it wasn't quite as easy as it is now. You know, it was quite expensive. And I didn't really have the time or the money until I was in my later 20s. And so finally I, I did embark on that first trip to Europe and, uh, One of the stops, of course, was my father's hometown in Bavaria. Or I should say, just before I left, um, I went to see this lawyer, Frederick Alberti in New York, who um, I've come to understand now was actually, you know, he was an important uh, lawyer for many uh, immigrant, Jewish immigrant families. But he was my father's lawyer, and he was the lawyer who would uh, help my dad in trying to get reparations uh, after the war and anyway i knew he had been in contact with this with this man so i went to see him in new york just to find out if there was any information or guidance he could give me before i went to germany and he gave me this uh, parcel this this uh, parcel of uh documents you know of my father's that i found very helpful you know his old driver's license his old passport uh, immigration papers and so forth.
1: Were those some of the clues into your father's past that you were wanting to know about? Yeah,
0: um, there was. Uh, I mean, one of the documents that really uh, sort of resonated with me was a uh, uh, the passenger list of the SS Bremen, which was the, uh, the ocean liner, you know, the ship that he sailed to America on. And I... And I remember opening that, you know, seeing the date, I think it was October 19th, 1937, and going down the list and seeing my father's name. And it just, you know, it sort of really brought it into, you know, it kind of gave me chills to think that my father was on that ship and that he was able to sail to safety when so many others uh, were unable to do that, like my grandfather.
1: Yes, exactly. That's what I was thinking. Like, even within his own family, the, the people that he had to leave behind and, and wonder about their uh, circumstances.
0: Yes. One of the motivations for writing the book for Inspirations was I found a, a box of old documents in my parents' attic um, after my father died, and it contained all these uh, correspondence with um, immigration agencies and shipping lines and government agencies. Um, You know, I I should say that, you know, my father, uh, sorry, my father immigrated in 1937, October 1937. And my grandfather, um, um, for whatever reason, you know, I don't know exactly because my father never spoke about it, but he obviously decided to stay behind. And he and uh, one of his sisters, because my grandfather had uh, eleven siblings, which was, you know, is a big family. But um, from what uh, I learned, uh, it wasn't that unusual to have larger families back then. But anyway, my grandfather um, decided to stay behind, and he was living uh, with his one of his sisters, um, and they were forced to sell their home in. Uh, Weiden, which is the name of the town that my family was from in Bavaria, they ended up in Frankfurt living in uh, a series of different houses. Uh, uh, before unfortunately they were deported to Theresienstadt in 1941.
1: So they are living in Weiden and then they are forced to move to Frankfurt for whatever the circumstances are at that time, and then from there, they're transported to Theresienstadt?
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, under the uh, Nazi policies, a lot of Jewish people were forced to sell their property, and so the family uh, house, which was a quite uh, large house in Biden, it was, um it was called the Kupfer Villa, actually, and so my grandfather and his sister were living there, and they were forced to sell the house. Uh, and they moved to Frankfurt, where they lived for uh, in several different houses before they were. From what I can discern, they were forced to live in a, a Judenhaus, you know, a house with other Jewish families um, where um, a lot of the occupants were then deported. And he was among, he and his sister um, were among the first Jewish uh, uh, people who deported from Frankfurt um, on a train. And I found out all the, you know, through various sources, I found out exactly which train he was on, um, even what number, the passenger number of of him and his sister uh, so that was also very, <clears throat> you know, striking for me to actually see the the number of my grandfather's passenger number.
1: Yeah. And there are letters between your father and grandfather during the course of this time that are so compelling that you touch on in your book. I don't know if you might want to share a bit about those.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you brought that out because that's what I was referring to before, this, yeah, this box of old letters. And yeah, there were these letters uh, that were my father's efforts to find a path out for my grandfather. So that was one part of the the package. But there was also uh, about a dozen letters between my father and grandfather. And that was very poignant and uh, also really drove home the, the struggle they had to um, to get out, and and, and the feeling of uh, increasing uh, concern and desperation as as the situation deteriorated in, in Germany, and and my grandfather writing about the different houses they were forced to to move to, and here was a a man who was you know lived an affluent, uh, stable life for the first 60 years of his life was, was a respected member of his community. And all of a sudden here he is living in one apartment after the other, um, not having any access to, uh, his assets because that was another part of obviously the, the Nazi policies of making it, uh, difficult for Jewish people to access their assets, uh, So he was had very limited uh, income, and he was asking my father to send him money, and uh, asking my father to obviously try to find uh, a route out. uh, You know, this was. uh, I mean, one of the things that I learned was how complicated it became for, uh, you know, German Jews to get out of uh, the country. Uh, and to get into the United States, because the American policies were rather uh, made it difficult.
1: Speaking to your grandfather's status before Nazi takeover occurred, he and his family had created this business, uh, as the title of your book speaks to, of glassmaking in Bavaria. And would you kind of describe? your, the unfolding of that story for you and what you learned?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um You know, my father mentioned uh, that his family was in the glassmaking industry and that he, that they had owned a factory in, in his hometown. But beyond that, I really didn't know very much at all. And I, so I just assumed it was, you know, uh, a small business uh, in a, a, lo- a local business. And when I got to Viden uh, that first time, um, as I mentioned in my book, I, I stumbled upon the office of the local newspaper. as I, I was actually looking for my grandfather's house to see if I could locate it. And I couldn't find the house, but on the same street where it had been located, I found this newspaper office and i just went in there to ask for you know some direction some some help and seeing if i could find uh, my grandfather's old house and when i told them who i was you know this american you know and i was fairly young i was like 28 and you know and all of a sudden uh there was all this interest in me you know uh, i remember uh a knot of reporters gathering around me and You know, because this was a fairly small city and they weren't accustomed to American tourists to begin with. And I don't think they were accustomed to seeing uh, a Jewish guy who was looking for his roots coming into town. So anyway, to make a long story short, I I was interviewed by one of the journalists for a story she was going to do. And by the way, this woman went on to become a very important uh, person in my quest to learn more about my family because she was very helpful uh and as i relate to my book we we, we you know we were friends we've become friends that has now lasted over 40 years and she's uh, a wonderful woman uh inga rockner and we're still in touch um but anyway while i was being interviewed by inga for an article she was writing another reporter sitting next next to her at in her office, started talking about pointing at a newspaper article that was in that day's newspaper. And it turns out the factory that my grandfather had owned was being closed that very day. Um, So uh, it was just astounding that this uh, was such a coincidence after 40 years uh, of not any Kupfers being the town, the factory that they had owned was, was going out of business. But getting back to your question um, about the scope of the business, you know, it turned out um, in, in the course of my visits to Biden, that the family had actually owned uh, many, many factories throughout Bavaria and that it was far from a local business. It was actually a quite um Important uh, in the Bavarian glass history of Bavarian glass making uh, the Kupfer enterprise uh, and that they had been in the industry for generations and so that was quite interesting to learn
1: You do such a beautiful job in your book of the poignant unraveling of the story for, uh, for yourself and for the, the reader and, and thank you for creating this Legacy for your family. I I think it's such an important thing to document this, and that to me it seems that the generation of your father didn't have the heart to put it to paper, and so the fact that you do that work is really such a beautiful testament to your family.
0: Thank you, Stephanie. Yeah, it was very rewarding and satisfying, and uh, yeah, I mean, the whole glass making. Uh, legacy was just something I uh, i uh, I was fascinated with and I, I actually one one little story I should like to share is that uh after this revelation that the factory was closing I I wandered over to the grounds of the factory that afternoon just out of curiosity you know I, I just wanted to see what the factory looked like and as I was standing outside the door of the entranceway. Um, the guard was closing the gate and I had the article in my hand I, and I pointed to it. I said, is, is this the factory? And, um, you know, the guard said, yes, this is the factory that's in that article. And then when I mentioned my name, he immediately recognized it and he invited me in. And as it turns out, I ended up going to the final meeting uh, of the of the factory uh, administration they invited me to join them and I'll never forget that moment when I walked into this conference room with all these bottles of beer and cigarettes and these kind of older gray-haired uh, factory uh, executives around the table and it just I just felt like I'd walked into like a, a war film and, and these were all Nazis like plotting their next acts of destruction. But that's because I was sort of in an agitated state and I think I was just, um, you know, I, my my imagination got the best of me. But I, it was quite amazing that I found myself sitting in this meeting with, with workers who knew my grandfather and and had worked who knew my father and so that was a a really incredible coincidence
1: the mixed feelings that to me stand out during your journey from that moment even of that meeting going forward uh you raise many questions in your book about how your father might have felt about the people that you were interacting with would you uh touch on how you were processing that
0: yes um that is very uh, true that I, I i had very ambivalent feelings throughout the trip um because um the people i met by and large were very nice to me very accommodating uh, friendly uh and as in the case of the journalist i met inga w- went well beyond, uh, you know, uh, really put themselves out to help me to uncover information about my family. Uh, I remember meeting one elderly woman who came, when she heard I was in town, came running down the block, waving a piece of paper. She was, you know, quite elderly, and she had a list of names of people and phone numbers, she said, I, I have to call these people to find out more about my family. So, yeah, that, that part of it, um, I felt, you know, when people invited me into their homes, they they offered me uh, food and drink, and so overall, the people I met were, were very nice, but um, obviously, I had mixed feelings, because these were also, uh, I was among the people who had witnessed this horrible uh, crime against my family and, and millions of other Jews. And so it was, uh, you know, it was obviously, my, I had a question, well, what did they know? Uh, were they aware of what was happening? I mean, uh, and I often got a very sort of similar response, which was because I did try to always sort of pose that question, like, in my you know, conversations with people said, well, did you know what happened? Did you, were you aware of what was going on? Um, and and almost always this answer was, we really didn't know what was happening. Um, we knew that the Jewish families in town were, were being, uh, you know, were leaving town. They were, you know, being taken to the railroad station, uh, but none of them acknowledged or, or admitted that they knew exactly what was going on or that, that that they knew about the camps and that sort of thing. So I was always uh, a little skeptical of the fact that they were saying they knew so little about what were, befell the Jewish families.
1: You've made many visits since that initial one in 1979 to Germany. What is your sense of the... Level of anti-Semitism that has persisted in the areas that you visited and with the people that you interacted with.
0: I remember having a conversation with the one of the Jewish leaders in uh, my father's hometown, uh, and he he told me that um, by and large, you know, the community was was very supportive of uh, Jewish families um, in the Jewish community. Um, they, um, provided protection for the synagogue, uh, and for the Jewish school. Um, so they felt, um, in general, quite supported, but they also, this gentleman also mentioned that there were occasional incidents of anti-Semitism in the town, not by the locals, but he said there was one time when a group of, uh, right wing, I think there were motorcyclists um, came into town and, and started causing some trouble, you know, like just being rowdy and, and making some anti-Semitic remarks. So um, I, I think uh, by and large, you know, there's very little, and of course I'm talking about years ago because my first visit was 79, then I went back in 83 uh and several times subsequent to that um so you know obviously it's a long period of time i don't know what the current state of anti-semitic uh, activity in germany is now but back then that you know it didn't seem like there was uh a lot of a lot of that oh and i should also mention that um you know i talked about the uh what was going on in the schools you know and about you know educating the younger people about what happened and, and that was kind of interesting because for instance inga my friend inga was just a little girl back during the nazi era and she told me that when she was in school as you know she, you know after after the fall of the third reich there was absolutely almost no mention of the holocaust and it was just not something that was that was taught in schools at all um, or or just very very uh, you know glancingly mentioned um and she said one of the reasons for that might be might have been that a lot of the teachers were probably nazis you know so that um, you know they didn't want to talk about it over the years that's changed quite a bit and in fact uh Today I mean there's a law now I believe that you you have to teach about the Holocaust in the German school system and you have to um, I think students are required to visit uh, if not a concentration camp other some other you know manifestation of the of the Holocaust. so uh, I, I think the Germans today are much more uh, enlightened about and much more, uh, Diligent about teaching the young people about that era.
1: How do you see the importance of visiting camps like Terezin, where I know that you have at least visited that camp where your grandfather is believed to have passed? So, what do you see as the importance of that for Holocaust education and for you personally?
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to say, uh, my first visit. To Germany, I did go to not not Theresen, but I went to a camp called Flossenburg, which was uh, near to Weiden. I think within a twenty minute, a half hour away. So as part of that first visit, I did visit uh, Flossenburg, and I just remember feeling this. You know, obviously, I'd I'd, I'd read about the camps, I'd seen newsreels, and uh, even movies, I think, uh, referencing the camps, but it's no substitute for the actual visceral feeling of being at one. And I just remember feeling just slightly nauseous, actually, the whole time I was there. And just, it was a very striking uh, experience for me. And obviously, the most difficult part of my visit. Uh, But it wasn't until many years later that I decided actually to go to Theresienstadt. Um, And I I remember uh, I was talking to a friend about that, uh, about the fact at that point I hadn't gone to Theresienstadt. And he urged me to go. He said, you know, it would be very important for me to go to the actual site where my grandfather reportedly was murdered. So, and I have to say, I'm. I'm very glad I did go because it was a very powerful experience, you know, and uh, you know just the visceral, uh, palpable uh, feeling of being in the actual place and seeing a lot of the structures that were still still there that had uh, processed and killed so many people, you know. And Trezen wasn't a uh, death camp per se; it was a uh, more of a ghetto and um, and yet the conditions were so were so uh, harsh and brutal, and and most of the occupants were were elderly Jews. So not all of them. I mean, there were there were children and other people as well. But I think in, initially uh, it was designed to accommodate um, sort of uh, prominent uh, Jewish intellectuals, business people, artists, uh, and then it became open. I think to to a lot of others as well. But um, anyway, it was a very visceral uh, experience and and very moving for me.
1: Especially knowing the circumstances of how your grandfather arrived there, I I don't know what he might have been told, but I've heard so many were lied to and told, this is a place where you will be treated well, and in your elderly years, you will have a resort atmosphere and in truth, the elderly were treated worse than any other population in Theresienstadt, I believe. They weren't given less calories each day, and it was already a, a, a poor diet to start with. And many weren't even given uh, shelter.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I did see, like, for instance, the uh, barracks, uh, because Theresienstadt was originally a military uh, fortress uh you know and it, the Nazis repurposed it to create this uh this horrible uh ghetto for for the Jewish people and it was a very harsh environment you know as i mentioned it wasn't a death camp but because of the working conditions uh the, uh, the living conditions the the disease was was quite rampant and as you mentioned the diet was was very poor so there was a, a lot of people died and a lot of others were deported to uh, to a death camp like auschwitz and triplink and so forth
1: before your grandfather was transported was it would you describe how he tried to Salvage certain assets of his, including, I believe, his parents' portrait.
0: Yes, well, that's a whole other story that uh, emerged uh, as a result of my visits to the hometown. Um, So shortly after I got back from my first visit to Biden in 1979, I received a letter uh, from elderly woman. Uh, who said that she had been a housekeeper in my grandfather's house for many years, and that uh, my grandfather, before he was forced to sell the house, had uh, entrusted her with a pair of portraits, paintings of his parents, so my great grandparents, uh, Edward and Franny. And, 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 and Francisca uh, Kupfer. And um, this was like just eye opening for me because my father had never mentioned those portraits. And so I had no idea they existed. And the fact that this woman had been holding them for over 40 years. And she said to me that she was very sad that she hadn't known that I'd been in Weiden because. She, she was blind and you know she was 90 years old and a blind woman. And she only found out about my visit afterwards. And in her letter, she said, you know, she would like nothing more than for me to come and, and, and for her to present the paintings, return the paintings to my family. So um, that was just a really startling development. And uh, it's a very long story of how, uh, I did recover the paintings, but uh, I'll just try to condense it by saying that a few years later, I unfortunately wasn't able to return to Wyden for almost four years. And when the time I got there, the housekeeper Emma Fisher had passed away, and the paintings were inherited by her niece. She didn't have her own; she didn't have children of her own. But to make a long story short, um, we went to visit the. The niece, uh, who was very uh, unfortunately very poor and had a a, a very ill husband, and you know she lived in in very difficult circumstances. And uh, initially, she said she would return the paintings, but somehow she uh, changed her mind and felt that I was perhaps uh, this wealthy skion of a wealthy glassmaking. Dynasty, and that I had lots of money, which wasn't true at all. I didn't really have a lot of money, but even if i had i I wouldn't have felt that it would have been appropriate for me to give her any money because these were paintings that her own aunt had said she wanted to return to me and that they had been given to her to to safeguard so anyway, it took many many years uh between that meeting with the the niece and uh, the time we actually got them back, it was over 20 years, actually. And the other thing was that, um, you know, the paintings themselves were not particularly valuable. I mean, we we had them, Inga, my journalist friend invited, actually had the paintings appraised. And while the the niece claimed that they were, you know, worth, she she actually asked for, I believe it was, I'm sorry, I can't remember if it was ten thousand marks or ten thousand dollars. It was a sizable amount of money, but actually, the paintings themselves were not valuable. They were just sort of because back then, this was before photography. We're talking about in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s when photography wasn't commonly used, and so a lot of more affluent families had portraits painted of their of themselves as family heirlooms or whatever. So the, the, these were not um, great works of art. I mean, they were lovely portraits, but they weren't worth much on the market.
1: How does it feel for you with something tangible like that, like the two portraits, to be connected to those again?
0: Yeah, it was wonderful. I mean, I the actual uh, time when we, when we physically were able to uh, reclaim them, uh, I met... My cousin from, I have a cousin in Paris, another outside of London, and the three of us uh, met in London. And we actually went to the home, not of the niece, but of the niece's son's wife, because over the years, not only did the housekeeper die, but her niece died, who inherited them. And then the niece's son, who inherited them, also passed away. So we finally were able to get them back through the wife and uh, so it was a wonderful moment you know it was very very poignant because this woman you know the paintings had been in her family now for 40 years so they she felt sort of attached to them but of course they were portraits of of our great grandparents and so we were delighted to have them back and we had a celebratory luncheon and we toasted uh, Edward and Fanny and having them back in the family and we also had to decide what to do with them um, there was you know, some discussion that we would have them we would donate them to a museum um, mm-hmm. but after a lot of discussion within the family we decided that we wanted them to stay in the fold after all those years of being away from the family and it, are now residing in my cousin in England's house outside of London. And I think, you know, with all the losses our family suffered, uh, this was like a small but uh, important kind of victory for us to finally have this piece of our family legacy returned.
1: Yeah. And that actually brings me to raise the post-war restitution claims that I believe your father had made efforts with, and perhaps the attorney you referenced earlier was part of.
0: Yeah. Um, So my father and his, he had one older brother, Ernst. My father's name was Robert. Uh, And I know, and by the way, my father came to the United States, but his brother uh, went to to France. So actually I have more... uh, Family in France than I do in the States, but they both made efforts to get uh, uh, restitution. They they made claims. I can't really speak too much to exactly what happened, but I just do remember my father sharing that they were they were you know it took them a long time to try to uh, get some kind of restitution and. And it wasn't very much. I, th- I think they might have gotten a few thousand dollars each. Um, and I just got a sense that it was, I mean, not just a sense, but I- I'm sure it was far less than what they had lost. Because not only was their property involved, you know, as I said, they had this very large house in Viden called the Kupfer Villa. Um, they had other other property, I believe. So they lost all that, but also, um, you know, my grandfather lost his uh, his his means of employment. Um, You know, one thing I should clear up about my the the glass industry. I believe they were, you know, by the time my father immigrated to the states in thirty seven, and they they were. I don't think they were still really in the glass industry that much because. The industry had changed a lot, and um, you know, I think it was difficult for Jewish uh, businessmen to to stay in business. So, um, I'm not exactly sure how much of the glass industry assets they had, but for sure, they lost a lot of uh, property um, and means of employment uh, as a result of the Nazi uh, policies.
1: How do you see your book addressing the injustices that your family had been forced to deal with?
0: Well, I think Stephanie, all, all these stories—you know, my story and many, many other stories written by uh, Holocaust survivors and their descendants. You know, it's, it's just important to to tell these stories so that people don't ever forget what happened. And you know, it's now been what a, a half a century since the Nazi regime and and the Holocaust, uh, it's natural that at that time people would, would forget or lose interest. But so I think the importance of my book and other many other books like it are to just remind people that this stuff really happened in this era we're living in now, where quite frankly I think our democracy is 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 hanging by thread and the danger of You know, a fascist and uh, dictatorial government in the United States is is, is a very real possibility. So I think it's important from that perspective, too, that people understand that this happened and it's not the of possibility that could happen again.
1: And and with that in mind, how do you see the legacy of what you want the book to do going forward? It, it seems like it's kind of entrenched in, in the thought you just expressed, but perhaps there's more.
0: Well, I mean, obviously, I'm very proud of being able to uh, share my family's story. And just from a personal perspective, um, it's very gratifying to to have this story uh, known, and you know, because as I mentioned, my dad never talked about it. it. was It was as if his life began the day he he walked off the gang gangway at the in New York in 1937, and it was like it was like a black box. He just never wanted to go there, and I think that's quite uh, not unusual for a lot of Holocaust survivors as i mentioned in my book there seems to be two general camps the, the survivors who never talk about what happened to them and those who can never stop talking about it and my father is definitely in the in the first you know he just didn't talk about it so i think it's important that i share my family's story in general but also the legacy of of what happened to to Jewish families in general,
1: is there a definition of justice that you have had over the years, and and or has it evolved over the course of even writing this book?
0: I wouldn't say that my my definition of justice has changed, but it's just been more uh, confirmed that you know I just feel it more viscerally when, when i when I explored my family history to to see what happened to them and other other Jewish people. As a result of these, you know, horrible regime, you know, I, I feel like it's just a, learning a lesson that's very important for us, especially in this era when there's so much hanging in the balance with uh, with democracy in the United States. You know that you know it's important to treat people fairly. It's important not to discriminate against people. I mean, it's important to to live in a just society where and not to permit uh, people of the ilk of, you know, the Nazi regime, or in some of the more contemporaneous regimes <laughs> that we are living under right now, you know, not not to allow people like that to to gain power where they can uh, persecute and discriminate against others.
1: Is there anything that you'd like to share that I have not asked you about?
0: I guess the one thing I really wanted to share that I found probably the most surprising thing, and I think I touched on this before, was, you know, I set out to learn more about my father's family and my father and and his life in Germany. But I also found that I learned a lot about myself and about, you know, just feeling more rooted, feeling having a stronger sense of, of who I am. Uh, because not only was my father's history sort of a uh, a mystery to me, but my mother's parents had come over from Ukraine at the turn of the 20th century. So they were also refugees from religious persecution. And so they their family history wasn't very well known to me as well. So I basically uh, grew up without much knowledge of my family history because it had been lost. So even though I didn't consciously set out to learn, to explore my own identity, I think by virtue of this, uh, you know, this quest to learn about my dad's family, I, I, I just feel more solidly rooted and have a stronger sense of my own identity. So that was sort of a, an added uh, benefit of, the, of this this process of writing the book. It took me like uh, almost 10 years to write this book, really, you know, from the time I first the inception of the idea and then just so many different, I mean, I couldn't even begin to tell you how many different uh, drafts I've made of the book. I mean, dozens. But it kept changing. You know, like I was saying before, like there's basically two different stories, the story of my father and me which I was really interested in telling, but also the story of the historic uh, research that went into uh, telling the story of my father's family. So uh, it took a long time to get that balance. And I don't I need don't to know if I got it right, because um, some people said I should have focused more on uh, the quest to learn about the history and less about my, my life with my dad. There's, I've been actually trying to get my uh, family's in um, remembered in Biden with uh, Stolperstein, and it took me many years. But in November, on the very day that my book is released, November 22nd, I'm going to be here for this uh, ceremony to honor not only my grandfather but in about eight or nine of his siblings that were murdered. Actually, the founder of this Stolperstein uh, project, uh, Gunter Gunter Demnig, I believe his name is. He's going to be there uh, at the ceremony, on November twenty second. I'm bringing my niece to attend. You know, I don't have any children of my own, but my brother's youngest daughter is going to join me, and uh, it's going to be very moving to, you know, to be participating in this ceremony.
1: The timing of your story, and like from this to the very beginning of you being there the day that the last, the meeting where they closed the factory, I mean, it was meant to be, don't you think? There's no question.
0: Yeah, I mean... I think people, that's what got me to write the book because people said, "You Peter, you've got to write this story, it's just too and I have to say, while I was there I, I sort of felt like I was in a Hollywood movie because there were all this stuff happening with the factory and just finding out stuff about it just seemed there so many coincidences and um, yeah, so like you say it was probably meant to be
1: There will be a link in the show notes to learn more about Peter Kupfer and his book the glassmaker's son. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe on your preferred platform. And if you'd like to support more episodes like this, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review. You can also leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law Podcast, or email me at stephanie at Law.com. And the podcast Patreon page has rewards for those interested at patreon.com forward slash warfare of art and law until next time this is stephanie Droddy bringing you warfare of art and law thank you so much for listening and remember injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere your plans for the second saturday of this month perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art culture and social issues hi everyone it's stephanie and every second saturday at 1 p.m eastern time i host the second saturday art and justice gathering an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at com.